Uh, hey, I am Josh. Uh, I'm one of the pastors of Soma. I, I'm primarily uh, up at the Midtown congregation, but uh, I know a lot of you guys and have been down here a few times and excited to be with you guys uh, again. Um, we are consider- uh, co- continuing, rather, uh, at all of our congregations around the city uh, to, to press into this idea of spiritual formation. And we're asking the question, what does it look like for us to practice the way of Jesus together for the life of the world? And over the, the, the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at kind of a mini-series on the practice of prayer. Because if, if you look at the life of Jesus, if you think about practicing the way of Jesus or following the way of Jesus, Jesus was a man whose life was defined from beginning to end by prayer. Like you read the Gospels and you find passages like Luke chapter 5 where Jesus is out there and he's healing the sick and he's casting out demons and he's preaching the good news of the kingdom. And then Luke 5 tells us that Jesus would often withdraw. He had this regular practice of withdrawing to solitary places to pray. He's constantly seeking to hear from his Father and to speak to his Father, constantly seeking to be in his Father's presence. And prayer was how Jesus continually and repeatedly aligned his life and his mission and his heart with what his father was doing in the world. And so maybe, maybe you're not even familiar with prayer. Or maybe you've been around church for a long time and you're not even sure what are we even talking about when we talk about prayer and why do we even do it? And I just want to give you just kind of a, a brief definition. It's not an exhaustive definition, but a brief definition of what prayer is. Prayer is how we connect to God and what he's doing in the world. Prayer is connecting to God and what God is doing in the world. We connect to God on a relational level. We are children of God, and we want to spend time with our Father, and we want to be in his presence, and we want to be changed by him. So we connect to God on a relational level, but we also connect to God on a missional level. We connect to God and to what God is doing in the world. This mind-blowing statement in the Gospel of John. Gospel of John chapter 14. Jesus is about to die. He's about to go to the cross. He's got all his disciples together on the last night before he goes to the cross. And they're freaking out. Because they have left everything to follow Jesus. And Jesus has talked about this kingdom of heaven that he's bringing to earth. And then he says, I'm leaving you and I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to be executed and I'm going to die. And they're like, well, what's going to happen to this mission that you called us into? And he makes this amazing statement, John chapter 14, verse 12. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Well, that is a mind-bending statement. The one who believes in me will do greater works than I did. And Jesus says it happens through asking in his name. What does it mean to ask in the name of Jesus? Like a lot of us think about prayer and we think Jesus, you know, Jesus' name is kind of like a tagline that you add on to the end. It's, It's kind of like this magic incantation. But in the ancient world, your name was your character. It was your reputation. And so what Jesus is saying is he is saying, pray for my glory, pray according to my character, pray for what I am doing in the world. Come to the father. He said a few verses before, come to the father through me, 
through my death and resurrection. Cry out for my name to be great, and the Father will hear your prayer, and he will answer your prayer. He says, I am carrying on my mission, and I am sending you out to carry this kingdom of heaven that is invading the kingdoms of the world, and I'm sending you out to carry it to the ends of the earth. He says, while I've been here on earth, I've been walking around Palestine, I've been healing the sick, I've been casting out demons, I've been raising the dead, I've been announcing the good news of the kingdom of God, but greater things than these you will do, because my kingdom is about to go viral, and I'm going to send it to the ends of the earth through you. I'm I'm, I'm about to go to the grave, and I'm about to conquer sin and death and hell itself. And I'm going to release my power over sin and death and hell and guilt and shame and fear. All of that power that I have through my life and death and resurrection, I am going to release it into the world. And how does he say he's going to do that? He says that he is going to release that power into the world through our prayers. Like that should blow your mind if you think about it. That the God who spoke the universe into existence with a word listens to the words that we pray and releases his power into the world through them. That's what prayer is. Prayer is how we connect to God and to what God is doing in the world. But if I'm honest with myself, I don't pray like that. Like even when I want good things, I want people to know Jesus. I want justice. I want human flourishing. I want an end to racism and poverty and oppression and human trafficking. I want the kingdom of God to come to earth. I want Jesus to set all things right and to make all things new. But but how often do I actually ask him? How often do I go and pour out my heart and pray for that? I think there are a number of reasons that we don't pray, and I think this is different for different people, but, but as I talk to, to people around all three of our congregations, what I find is that there are three major roadblocks to prayer in our church and in my own life. The first roadblock is the roadblock of distraction. Distraction. We live in a culture of distraction. Did you know that at any given moment, right now, there is something like 11 million different pieces of data bombarding your brain right now? And we live in the midst of a world that is designed to bombard us with more and more all the time. Reading a fascinating book right now, it's by a guy named Tim Wu. Uh, He's professor of law and science and technology at Columbia University. He's the guy who coined the phrase net neutrality. Um, some of you guys know what that means. I'm not even exactly sure what it means, but I've heard it's, it's kind of a big deal. And so uh, he wrote this book. Uh, it's called The Attention Merchants, The Epic Scramble to Get Inside Our Heads. And he lays out the history of media and marketing and advertising over the past couple of centuries. And and his whole premise is this, that the most valuable commodity in the world today is your attention. There are governments and there are corporations and there are industries systematically seeking to, to engineer your daily experience in order to distract you and to grab your attention and maybe to sell you something or to convert you to some way of thinking. Listen to what he says. This is a really sobering Uh, paragraph. He says, ultimately, it is not our nation or our culture, but the very nature of our lives that is at stake. For how we spend the brutally limited resource of our attention will determine those lives to a degree that most of us may prefer not to think about. As William James, who's a philosopher, observed, we must reflect that when we reach the end of our days, our life experience will equal what we paid attention to, whether by choice or by default. 
we are at risk without fully realizing it, living lives that are less our own than we imagine. Now listen, the point of this is not to unleash a tirade against, you know, marketing and advertising and media. We're not going to have an altar call and expect you to burn your iPhones and go live in a bunker somewhere and become a prepper. That's not the point. The point is this. Your attention, your attention is the most valuable thing you have. And what you pay attention to will determine the shape of your life. And for many of us, that's what keeps us from praying. Because we have all these other things vying for our attention. And once they've grabbed our attention, they try to lure us to something else. Because I don't need God when I can buy that product. I don't need God when I can get that experience. I don't need God when I can escape into an endless stream of social media and Netflix. So many of us, we we don't pray because we're distracted. Second, many of us, we don't pray because we have a false sense of self-reliance. False sense of self-reliance. We're Americans. We're, We're Midwesterners. Like, we work hard, we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, and there's a lot to be admired about that. But listen, there are some things in life that you cannot simply accomplish by the sweat of your brow and the strength of your work ethic. And I know that goes against everything that your mom and your kindergarten teacher told you, but that is the reality of life. And that is especially true when it comes to the kingdom of God. Like, I think about myself right now. I can work my fingers and my brain to the bone preparing to preach this message. But if the Holy Spirit doesn't take it and plant it in your hearts, it won't accomplish anything. And we as a church can have all these plans about how we want people to encounter Jesus and we want to plant churches and we want to serve our city. But if God doesn't breathe life into those pursuits, they will be powerless. Like, can I tell you how most pastors pray? This is just true confession time. I don't know if it's true for Phil. It's true for me. Uh, I get in my office. I start to pray. I start laying these requests before the Lord. And I think about all these things. Then I start thinking about all the things I have to do to make those things happen. And three minutes into my so-called prayer time, I'm up sending an email. I'm working on a project. And I think that my activity is going to make all the difference. And for all intents and purposes, I've cut God out of the equation. And I think that's true for many of us in our lives. When you are faced with an insurmountable, impossible task, what is your reaction? Is it to freak out? Is it to throw it up on social media? Is it to start scheming? Is it to activate your networks? Or is it to go to God in prayer? We don't pray because of a false sense of self-reliance. We don't pray because we're distracted. Finally, for some of us and many of us in the church, we don't pray simply because we've got some messed up theology. It's like, Well, God's going to do it anyway. God's going to do what God's going to do. So so why does it matter if I pray? Listen, if you have a theology that teaches you that you don't need to pray, you have a theology that is nothing like the theology of Jesus or the Apostle Paul. Jesus was God in the flesh. And yet, as God in the flesh, he prayed like his life depended on it. And if the Son of God needed to pray like that, then I probably need to pray like that as well. God is working in the world and he is calling us to be a part of what he's doing. And the truth is God uses people, imperfect, weak, broken people to get his purposes accomplished. And prayer is one of the primary ways that we join God in what he is doing. All throughout the Bible, you see examples of what, of what has historically been called by the church contending prayer. I don't know if you ever heard that phrase, contending prayer. Here's what it means. It means prayer that recognizes that there's a fight going on. 
Prayer that recognizes that, that we need to have a wartime mentality. Prayer that recognizes what the scriptures teach all throughout the, the, the gospels and all throughout the epistles and all throughout the, the, the scope of the scripture that the kingdom of light is invading the kingdom of darkness and that prayer is one of the primary weapons God gives his people to contend for the glory of God and the good of other people. And friends, I honestly cannot think of anything that Soma Church needs to learn. All three of our congregations, anything we need to learn more than that. As a people who are often distracted, as a people who many of us in here feel like, like we're pretty confident in our ability to get things done, we've got to learn to contend in prayer. And so what I want to do over our time today is I want to take a look. I want to camp down in a passage of scripture that paints a picture of what this should look like in the lives of the followers of Jesus. So it comes at the end of the book of James. So if you have a, a copy of God's word or if you've got it on your phone or whatever, we're going to be in James chapter 5. James chapter 5 verses 13 through 18. James says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. You see two simple things in this passage, so two keys to contending prayer, two keys to connecting to God and what God is doing in the world. And they're very simple. Here they are. One, be honest about where you are, and two, be confident in who God is. Be honest about where you are and be confident in who God is. First, be honest about where you are. James 5, 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Which, by the way, if you've read the book of James, they were definitely suffering. They were suffering all kinds of oppression and persecution. Is anyone among you suffering? Let them pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let them sing praise. He says, be honest about where you are. Good times or hard times? suffering or happiness be honest with god about it if times are hard cry out to god in prayer if times are good sing out to god in praise see some of us find it easier to pray when times are hard some of us find it easier to pray when times are good but we should all be praying all the time he says prayer should be like breathing to us breathe in cheerfulness breathe out praise Breathe in suffering, breathe out prayer. Be honest with God about where you are. It doesn't surprise him. Be honest with him about where you are. It goes further, verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Here's this person, and, and, and they can't even get out of bed. They are so sick, they can't get up. And he says the elders of the church have to come and literally pray over them because they can't get up and to anoint them. And, and he says we as a community, and specifically the elders, should be crying out for healing and trusting God to heal. And then it gets really interesting. He says, and your sins will be forgiven. 
Because the fact is that God treats us as whole human beings. He loves our bodies and he loves our souls and he is concerned to bring both physical healing and spiritual healing into a broken world. And it's not just one or the other. He says, anoint the person with oil, which is really interesting. And I actually think there's a double symbolism here with oil. oil rather. Here's what I mean. Uh, in the ancient world, oil was considered uh, as having medicinal properties. So in other words, people would, they would apply it to wounds to soothe the wounds. Or some people thought that certain kinds of oil had certain kinds of healing properties. And so in one sense, this is a natural means. It's a natural medicine. Many of you in this room are working in medicine and you're dedicating your lives to bringing healing and comfort to hurting people. So on the one hand, there's these natural means. But on the other hand, there's actually a much deeper symbolism here with oil. Because if you read the scriptures, oil is a symbol of the presence of God. It's symbol, a symbol of the Holy Spirit. You read the Old Testament, when they would anoint a king with oil, they would pour oil over his head and they would say, the Holy Spirit is with you. God is with you. And so it's a tangible symbol that God is with you. God is saying, in the midst of your sickness, in the midst of your illness, in the midst of your anxiety and your depression, in the midst of a life that feels like it's falling apart, in the midst as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, in the midst of whatever is happening in your life, remember that God is with you and that God is for you and that God has not abandoned you. And he says, and your sins will be forgiven. Because the fact is, God doesn't just want to heal your body. He wants to heal your soul. We are physical and we are spiritual. And the fact is that sometimes sickness is actually both physical and spiritual. Sometimes, sometimes if we will listen to our bodies, we will hear them trying to tell us something about what's happening in our souls. King David talks about this, Psalm 32. He says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Psalm 32, verse 3. For when I kept silent, what he's saying is, when I tried to hide my sin, when I tried to, to just manage it and keep it under wraps, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. You ever felt that? Have you ever felt that? Where you're trying to just keep something in? Where you're trying to hide something in your life that you don't want other people to know about and it feels like the strength is just being drained out of you? Verse 5, he tells us the solution. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You set me free. The fact is, our bodies keep a score of what's happening in our souls. Now listen, that does not mean, it does not mean that every time you get sick, it's because of unconfessed sin. And it doesn't, doesn't mean that you should walk around here listening for everybody who sneezes and, you know, trying to figure out what sin is going on in their life. Like, someone say, hey bro, how's your heart? Like, what's, what's, what's going on in your life that you're not, like, my whole family last week was absolutely decimated by the flu. Let me tell you what I did not do. I did not wake my wife out of her flu-induced coma to ask her what sin she was hiding. Like, little tip for the husbands, don't do that, okay? Because there are a lot of places in the Bible where Jesus heals people of diseases that have nothing to do with hidden sin in their lives. And so James is not saying all sickness is the result of hidden sin. But he is saying that our body keeps a score. He is saying Jesus is the great physician. 
He is the one who heals the body and the soul. And the church should be a hospital for sinners where sinners can find that kind of healing as well. That's why he says, confess your sins to each other. Verse 16, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. See, being honest about where you are doesn't just mean being honest about your suffering. Doesn't mean just being honest about your sickness or about your situation. It means being honest about your sin. It means recognizing God doesn't just want to heal my body. He wants to heal my soul. He wants to heal me at the core of who I am. We confess our sins to one another and we pray for one another. A healthy community, a healing community, is a community where we are confessing our sins to each other. Where if I've hurt someone, I go to them and I confess that to them and I ask them for their forgiveness. Where if someone has wronged me, they come to me and they're honest with me about it and I choose to forgive them. Where if I'm struggling with some sin, I can be honest with that, about that with my brothers or sisters and they're not going to use it as a weapon against me. And they'll pray for me and they'll love me and they will point me to the grace and the forgiveness that Jesus offers and they will walk with me as I seek to fight that sin. That's what a healing community looks like. So let me ask you, are you that kind of friend? Like, not, not all of us together, just you personally. Do your friends know that they can come and they can honestly confess their sins to you? Is that the kind of spouse you are? Does your husband or your wife know that they can honestly come to you and confess their sin to you and that you will seek to forgive them? Not that it's always easy. Sometimes it's difficult and it's painful and it is a long process. But are you the kind of friend and the kind of spouse and the kind of parent and the kind of person that people can feel confident confessing their sin to? Do they know that if they're honest with you, you will seek to extend forgiveness and healing? And conversely, are you the kind of person who's, be, who's willing to be honest with other people about your own sin? We don't justify it. You don't try to excuse it. You don't try to hide it. You don't try to deny it. You don't try to explain it away. You simply say, I'm sorry. I was wrong. I've sinned. Every church, I've been a pastor now of four different churches. Um, every church has certain buzzwords that are part of its culture. And if you've been around Soma at all, you know we've got these buzzwords. Uh, some of our members at Midtown created a board, a board game to celebrate this fact. It's called Soma Lingo Bingo. So, Soma Lingo Bingo, and here's, here, this is the initial Soma Lingo Bingo board, and so you've got all kinds of things. Now, this is Midtown, remember, so you've got Broad Ripple up there, uh, but you're going to have things, hospitality, community, reconciliation, intentional, uh, on another one of the boards, Rhythms is up there, MC, you've got all these different things that are kind of just like weird kind of vocabulary that we throw out around here, and so the idea is, you know, you're kind of bored when the guy's up here talking for a long time, and so you listen as, as he goes along and you mark it off and you try to make bingo and <laughs> thankfully we've never had anyone yell bingo in the middle of a sermon but like it could happen someday but there's like this vocabulary right we've got this vocabulary that kind of is, is part of the ethos of who we are as a community every every community has those kind of things but here's the thing if we want to be a place of healing if we want to be a place where people really experience the presence and the power of Jesus, then the language of confession and repentance and honesty and forgiveness needs to be central to our life together. 
Is that the kind of community we are? Are we a community? Are we a people who are honest with God and who are honest with each other? That's the first key. Be honest about where you are, but don't stop there because if you stop there, you're just going to be depressed and helpless. Be honest about where you are. Second, be confident in who God is. Confident in who God is. Verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now this is not about having confidence in who you are. This is not about having confidence in your ability to pray the right prayer. This is about having confidence in who God is. This is about having confidence in the God who hears our prayers. James talks about this guy named Elijah. In Jewish thought, Elijah is the greatest of all the prophets. And yet James says, Elijah was a man just like us. You read 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah got depressed. He got tired. He got scared. He just wanted to die. He asked God to kill him. He was a man like us. And the sobering reality for me as, as I dug into this passage over the past couple of weeks is that the primary difference between Elijah and me is that Elijah prayed and I don't. He prayed fervently. He prayed desperately. He poured out his heart to God because he recognized that God was all he had. And if God didn't show up, he was helpless. It's one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. Here's Elijah. He's a, he's a prophet, and he goes and he confronts King Ahab. King Ahab is this wicked king, king of Israel. He's, he's following a false god named Baal, and he's leading the people to follow this false god. And so I, I, Elijah goes and he says, Ahab, turn from your false god. Turn back to the one true god. And, of course, Ahab refuses. And so Elijah says, okay, because you won't turn back to God, God's going to get your attention, and it's not going to rain. And it doesn't rain for three and a half years. And does Ahab turn back to God? Of course not. He blames Elijah. And he sends these soldiers after Elijah to capture Elijah. And Elijah's like, oh, you want to do this? Let's do this. Like, we can do this right now. It's like, it's like a John Wayne movie. He's like, meet me at Mount Carmel at high noon. Which, it actually wasn't high noon. I think it was like nine in the morning. But high noon sounds better. So he says, meet me at Mount Carmel at high noon. And you bring all your priests of Baal. And I'm going to bring myself. And we're going to see whose God is God. So Ahab rolls up, he's got 450 priests of Baal, and Elijah rolls up, and it's Elijah and his one sidekick. And they build these two altars, and they kill these two bulls, and they put them on the altars. And then the priests of Baal go first, and they start crying out to their God. And they pray louder, and they pray longer, and they actually literally begin cutting themselves, letting the blood flow to try to get Baal's attention. And nothing happens. So I love Elijah, he's like, Hey, bro, where's your God? Like, yell louder. Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Like, get his attention somehow. And these priests, they keep crying out, and they keep praying, and they cut themselves for three hours, and they are exhausted, and nothing happens. And Elijah says, all right, bring me three buckets of water. And he takes the water and he douses the sacrifice. And then he digs a moat around the altar and he fills it with water. And he cries out to the Lord and God sends fire from heaven that burns up the sacrifice and dries up the water all around it. And then Elijah says, do you see who the real God is, Ahab? 
I know it hasn't rained for three and a half years, but I'm about to pray for rain, so you better get moving, Ahab, because there's a storm coming. And then he prays again. And the same God who stopped the rain sends the rain. There's this literal mountaintop experience. And then in the very next chapter, he is running for his life and he just wants to die. He is depressed. He is scared. He was a weak, fallen, frightened man. But his God was strong. His God heard his prayer. His God sent fire from heaven. His God sent rain to the earth. Elijah was a weak man trusting in a mighty God. So let me ask you today, because maybe you're like me and you just feel weak and you just feel broken and you feel like you got nothing to give. In the midst of your weakness, in the midst of your brokenness, in the midst of your helplessness, what are you crying out to God for? What fire are you calling down from heaven? What rain are you calling down from heaven? What impossible thing are you trusting God to do? Because if we can't answer that, if I can't answer that, then I got to ask myself the question, do I believe in the same God that Elijah believed in? I find that one of the primary sins in my life is what I simply call the sin of resignation. That's what I mean by that. I mean, I just kind of roll with the punches. And to some extent, you got to do that in life. But if I am convinced of something, if I believe in something, and not just something for my own selfish desires, if I believe in something for the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom and the good of other people, then why wouldn't I cry out for it? Why wouldn't I contend for it? Why wouldn't I go to my knees and fight a holy war of prayer for it? That's what Elijah's doing. He is contending for the glory of God. And here's the thing, Soma Church, we've seen some cool things over the past seven years of our existence, the past three and a half years of Soma downtown. And God's been kind to us. But I want to ask you, what are we believing God for? What are we trusting God for? What are we crying out to God for? Because as we talk about serving our city and making disciples and taking the gospel to our neighborhoods and the nations, this is not a game. Like we're stepping into contested space. And the kingdom of darkness is not just going to roll over and give up without a fight. And so if we want to see God's kingdom come in Indy and in all nations, we need the power and the presence of God. And so I want to ask you, will you go to your knees and will you fight for the good of our city and the good of our neighbors and the good of the nations and the glory of God? It's not that there's something special about us. Like we are weak, fallen people like Elijah, but our confidence is not in ourselves. Our confidence is in God. That's why the text calls it the prayer of faith. Not the prayer of self-reliance, not the pep talk about how you can do it if you just believe in yourself. It is the prayer of faith. The prayer of trust in someone and something outside of ourselves. Not confidence in ourselves, confidence in God. And it doesn't mean that you never struggle. It doesn't mean that you always feel strong. Sometimes all you do is you pray, I believe, help my unbelief. Because sometimes our faith feels weak, but you place your weak faith in a strong God. And you trust that he can deliver. You trust his power. You trust his wisdom. You trust his love. And sometimes that faith means recognizing that he may not give us exactly what we ask for. Sometimes it means that you cry out to God. And you trust God. And he doesn't heal your body. He doesn't heal your child. He doesn't heal your marriage. 
And in those moments, the prayer of faith looks like the prayer of Jesus in the garden. He's in the garden of Gethsemane. He's about to go to the cross. He is terrified. He is literally sweating blood. And he cries out to his father. He says, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He's honest with his father. Father, I don't want to do this. Father, please find another way. Father, please don't do this. But, but even if you kill me, Father, I trust you. I trust that your way is better than mine. I rest in your wisdom and I rest in your love. Because God is a good father. And he loves to give good gifts to his children. But sometimes we, his children, sometimes we ask him for things that we think are good and he knows they're not what's best for us. I've got three kids, six, four, and three. I do not give my kids everything they ask for. My three-year-old wants the keys to the car. I do not give them to him. And believe it or not, he gets really mad at me about it. And he turns beet red, and he flops on the ground like a fish, and he can't understand why I won't give him the keys. Why won't I give him the keys? Because I love him. Because I love him, and because I know what's best for him. And the fact is that I don't always understand why my Father in heaven doesn't give me the things that I ask for. Like real talk, in my life right now, there are things that I've been contending and crying out to God for for years, and I don't know why he hasn't given them to me. Sometimes I pitch a fit like my three-year-old, and they seem like good things, and I don't know why he hasn't given them to me, but here's what I know. I know that he knows what he's and I know that he loves me. I thank God that he hasn't given me everything I asked for because the truth is, if he gave me everything I asked for, I'd be terrified to ask for anything because I look at the things I've wanted in the past and I see them now and I thank God he loved me enough to tell me no. Here's the good news about prayer. You can come to God and you can pour out your heart to him and you can be absolutely honest with him and you can cry out for him to give you what you want and if it's the thing that's best for you, he'll give it to you. And if it's not what's best for you, he will give you something better. You can have confidence when you pray because you don't have to get it perfect. You don't have to get it right. You don't have to nail it. You can trust your father who loves you to get it right and to give you what's best. See, practically, here's the thing. Practically, I think for a lot of us, we really want to pray. But we just don't know how to pray. We don't know what to pray. It is really hard to contend in prayer when you don't even know what you should be praying for. So here's just a, a few things that have helped me along the way. First thing is this. Pray the scriptures. Pray the scriptures. The Bible is full of prayers that Jesus and the apostles pray for us. John 17 Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3, Colossians 1, Philippians 1. If you ever don't know how to pray for yourself, if you ever don't know how to pray for, for someone else, open up the Bible and go to those prayers and pray those prayers. And what happens is, is the Spirit then begins to show you what you need. Pray the Scripture. Second, depend on the Spirit. Romans 8, 26, we, we, we read this earlier in the liturgy. Romans 8, the Apostle Paul says this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do, do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Like, this is the Apostle Paul. Okay, so this is a, a guy who wrote half the books in the New Testament. 
He says, sometimes I don't know how to pray. Sometimes we don't know what to pray for. And yet we can come confidently to God in prayer because when you don't know what to pray, the Spirit of God is praying for you and He always prays for the right thing. Pray the Scriptures, depend on the Spirit, finally rest in Jesus. Rest in Jesus. James 5, 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Now in one sense, that sounds like a great comfort, right? God hears the prayer of a righteous person. In another sense, that is really discouraging because if I'm honest with myself and I'm honest with God and I'm honest with you, I am not righteous. And even my best attempts to do the right thing are still infected with selfishness and hypocrisy. And I can't come before God and say, God, you know what? I'm righteous. I've got it all together. I've done everything right. You should listen to me, God. You should hear me. I can't come before him on the basis of my own righteousness. But here's the amazing thing. If you are here today and you are trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection to make you right with God, if you're, if you're trusting in what he's done for you, then you have a perfectly righteous person praying for you right now. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. My sin condemns me. My conscience condemns me. My guilt and my shame condemn me. But Jesus stands in my place and he pleads for me. He intercedes for me. He prays for me. He lived the righteous life I should have lived. He died the death I deserve to die. He rose again to the right hand of God the Father. And now when my sin and my guilt and my shame accuse me, Jesus stands in my defense and he pleads for me and he declares me righteous. And that's why I can pray with confidence. Because God the Father loves me broken and sinful as I am. God the Father loves me as he loves his own son. God the Father accepts me as he accepts his own son. God the Father is just as committed to me as he is to Jesus Christ. So I can be perfectly honest with him. Honest about my suffering. Honest about my sin. I can be honest about all of it. And I can be confident in who he is. Because he's my father who loves me who accepts me not because of my righteousness, but because of Jesus' death and resurrection, who invites me to come boldly and ask him for good things, and who always gives me what's best for me. So let me encourage you to take that mindset as you approach God. Be honest about where you are. Be confident about who he is. We're going to do something a little different today uh, during the Lord's Supper. So we just read this passage, James chapter 5. It says, if anyone's sick, let him call for the elders of the church, anoint him with oil, uh, and be prayed for. And the last thing I want to do is like come to the Bible and read the Bible, and it tells you to do something and be like, okay, that's cool. Let's, let's go do something else. What I want to do is I want to open up space for us to practice these things. And so we're going to go to the Lord's Supper in just a moment. We'll have uh, the elements like we always do uh, up in these front two corners and then in the back gluten-free up here uh, in the front right. And so we're going to go to the Lord's Supper in just a moment, but we're also going to have our elders, so Pastor Phil, Pastor Kent, and myself, we're going to be around the room. Uh, and if you'd like someone to pray with you, if you'd like someone to, uh, you know, we're not going to like pour the oil over your head, but if you just want like a little dab or whatever, uh, to remind you, again, there, there's nothing special about this oil. 
So we didn't send any money to a televangelist. Um, it's not even an essential oil. Uh, all it is is it's just it's some olive oil we had in the kitchen uh, at Midtown. So nothing magical about it. But what it is, as I said, it's, it's actually a physical and tangible reminder. The Holy Spirit is with you. God is with you. In the midst of your darkness, in the midst of the most difficult times in life, God is with us. So if you, if you want someone to pray for you, we'd love to do that. That could be uh, for physical sickness. That could be a spiritual sickness. That could be a relationship that needs healing. That could be something desperate in your life. Maybe, maybe you've been hiding something that you need to be honest about. It could be any number of things. So we would love to pray for you. If you don't get too freaked out by the oil, we'd love to just dab a little on it. Again, as a reminder, as a reminder that, that God's presence is with us. The bread and the cup that, that we're about to take, that's also a tangible reminder of the presence of God with us. It reminds us every week the body of Jesus was broken for us, the blood of Jesus was shed for us so that we could have our sins forgiven, so that we could have the presence of God living inside of us. So if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're trusting in his death and resurrection to make you right with God, then come and eat and drink. We'll have stations at the front, stations in the back, like I said. And, and maybe you're here and maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're here and you're not trusting in his death and resurrection to make you right with God. And so we encourage you just to use this time while others come to take the bread and the cup. Just use this time to be honest with yourself. Where are you? And if you're willing to step out a little bit, maybe even try being honest with God. Like, God, I, I don't know if you're there. I don't even know if you exist. I'm having a hard time believing in you. I'm struggling with this thing. Be honest about where you are. The last thing I'll say is this. Maybe, maybe you need to be honest with someone else in this room. A spouse, friend, a former friend. Maybe you need to confess your sin to them. Maybe you need to extend forgiveness to someone else. Maybe you just need to get together with a group of people around you and pray together. So feel free to use this time uh, to do whatever, whatever God's calling you to do. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper, and we'll be around if you'd like us to, to pray with you, uh, and then we'll move on uh, with the rest of the service. So let me pray. Father, we are a weak people. We are a sinful people. We are a broken people. We confess that by ourselves we're not righteous. By ourselves, we don't have anything that would earn your love or earn your favor. Thank you that we don't have to. Thank you that the body of Jesus was broken for us. Thank you that the blood of Jesus was shed for us. Thank you that you're with us. You don't just, you don't just forgive our sins and then just leave us by ourselves, but you place your spirit within us and you walk with us. And in the midst of this the valley of the shadow of death, you're with us. Father, remind us of that. Make us a people who are honest about where we are. Make us a people who are confident in who you are. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.